Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Tuesday, May the 10th, 2022. It is currently 527 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. Now, I don't know if you heard our live broadcast last night. But by the time that live broadcast was over, let's just say I was frustrated, I was irritated. In fact, by the when it was over, I I was just I'm just gonna be honest with you, there was almost like a wave of depression that just hit me. And I know that most people who heard it. The, the situation probably did not bother. I, I know most of the people listening, they probably were not near as bothered by what we heard as I was, but I was extremely upset about it. And it just irritated me to no end. Now, if you don't know what, we're, what we've been doing, now we have been obviously working on Matthew chapter 24 now for uh, quite a bit of time, right? I think this is part, in fact, I think this is part nine, or part 18. Yeah, this is part 18. So we've spent 18 plus hours, 18 plus hours working on Matthew chapter 24. That's a lot of hours, right? Because almost every broadcast, almost every message is about an hour long. So it's uh, 18 plus hours. Well, 17 plus hours before this is over, it'll be 18 plus hours. So we're fast approaching 18 plus hours working on Matthew chapter 24 for, for the Bible study exercise series Remember, that series is designed to try to get you to actually study the Bible, not just listen to people tell you what the Bible means, but to really dig in and do all of the work that is required. Uh, I I hand out homework. People can turn that in. There's curriculum. And so I'm not going to go through everything about the Bible study exercise, but please, please, uh, you know, participate in them. And if you have the Church One app, that's Church O-N-E, Church O-N-E. You can go to the Bible Study Exercise Series. I think there's almost 250 episodes now available to you, all for free. And you can participate wherever, even if you go back listening to an old one, feel free to participate. Feel free to do the homework on the old one and send it to me. Whatever we can do to help you actually study the Bible. And the reason you need to study the Bible is because sadly, There's a lot of abuse, misuse, and twisting of Scripture that does nothing but confuse and deceive people. But let me just explain a little bit of my frustration before we continue, and I I try to kind of fill you in with what we were doing last night. As a Christian, as a non-Catholic, as a Protestant, evangelical Christian, and I don't even necessarily like the term evangelical. I, I kind of see myself more in line, in many cases, with what would be quote unquote, unquote called a fundamentalist, someone, and not the fundamentalist that what fundamentalism turned into, but back to more of the original idea of a fundamentalist, the fundamentals of the faith, fighting for those fundamentals of the faith. Obviously, one of those fundamentals of the faith is is that the Bible is the inerrant, inspired Word of God. It is our final authority. It is what we turn to. It is the Bible, right? And that's a basic concept that we believe, obviously, is non-Catholics. And what goes along with that concept within the Protestant world is that not only is the Bible our final authority, but you, me, as an individual— Not only do we have the right to interpret it, we have the authority to interpret it. And then we can, based off our interpretation of Scripture, in a sense, now some may try to to try to reword this, but in practice, this is how it works. We can sit there in a church and go, nope, that's not biblical, that's not biblical, because based off my interpretation, you're wrong, you're wrong. And then we can either try to get rid of the pastor, we can try to go through whatever, however your church is structured, you'll do whatever you, you want to do to try to change something, fix something, because you disagree with their interpretation, or you just leave go find another church or start another church. That's the way it's worked in the Protestant world. Whether people like that or not, that's the way it is. And it's based off the idea that we can read and interpret the Bible. And guess what goes along with that? 
Not only can we read and interpret the Bible, the Bible is obviously clear enough, plain enough that the average layperson can read it and interpret it again to such an extent that they can judge what is being preached from the pulpit as either being true or false and whether accepting it, condemning it, and then making changes in the church based off that interpretation. I mean, in practice, that's the way it works. We we can try to clean it all up with the right language, but that's the way it works. Now, while we claim that, while we say the Bible is the final authority, we can interpret it, the Bible is plain enough that we can interpret it and then judge teaching, while we claim that, the reality, so we claim that and we put that into practice, but there is a reality that for some reason nobody wants to discuss and no one wants to acknowledge, and that is this. We can't agree on anything when it comes to the Bible. We can't agree on any theology, on any doctrine. We don't agree on the Lord's Supper. We don't agree on baptism. We don't agree on how the church should be structured. We don't agree on soteriology, ecclesiology, eschatology. We don't agree on anything. You say, oh, no, no, no. We agree on the fundamentals. Are you sure? In other words, oh, you may find a group of people who agree on those fundamentals, but there will be another group who will say your fundamentals are wrong and their understanding of those fundamentals is right. It's just it's just never-ending disagreement. Just get on any social media platform and watch Christians argue and gripe and condemn one another. And this person doesn't know how to preach and he's preaching wrong and his interpretation is wrong. It's just never-ending And at some point, you just want to throw your hands up and say, you know what? Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Meaningless, 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 all is meaningless. And I know when I say that, people are like, oh, how dare you? But at some point, does it not just drive you crazy that there's just so much disagreement? Now, I've I've been always aware of this issue. In fact, this issue... Because many of you know, I, I, I decided to go to a Catholic university to pursue a degree in Catholic theology because I got tired of listening to people preach about Catholicism and misrepresenting it. So I wanted to be able to preach about Catholicism, even though I reject it, but speak, it, speak about it from a more of a perspective of knowledge, not a pers- perspective of ignorance, if, if that is a nice way of saying it. So, uh, but in, in the Catholic university, it would be pointed out over and over, you know what your sola scriptura gives you? Everyone thinks they're right, everyone interprets it, and it leads to nothing but spiritual anarchy and chaos. Now, in the Catholic system, you have a magisterial authority, and that the church is the one who has the authority to interpret the Bible, but the Protestant Reformation obviously rejects that. So I know the problem has existed. I know the problem has existed. And it and it and it, look, it will always bother me. It may not bother you, and that's perfectly okay. It, it doesn't. Ha- I mean, if if you're not bothered by it, I, I mean, I can't. I mean, congratulations is all I can say. But at some point, if you look around, you're just going to grow frustrated. In fact, if you if you buy lots of commentaries, you may just get frustrated. You're like, I got ten commentaries, and they give me fifty interpretations on one verse. It's like this. This is just ridiculous. It's crazy, but that's the way it works. But typically, I find a way to just, all right, I'm not happy about this situation. Sometimes my frustration rises to the surface, but most of the time I keep it pushed down and I just keep moving forward. But for some reason, our study of Matthew 24 has brought all of those feelings just to the surface. And they're just, I mean, I'm just, they're just pouring out of me. My frustration is just overwhelming because Matthew chapter 24, I mean, look, there's times, there's some, look, there's plenty of passages that I can accept and understand that there's disagreement and there's difficulty and there's struggle because the passage is inherently difficult or vague or confusing or there's textual variance or whatever the case may be. Like I, I, can, I can appreciate struggle and difference on passages that you're looking at going, well, <laughs> I don't know, maybe you're right. I mean, I can understand that. But in a passage that reads like this, Matthew chapter 24, 
And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. That's a pretty straightforward thing. Jesus is on earth. This is occurring, obviously, during his earthly ministry, somewhere between 30 and 33 AD, probably close to 33 AD. His disciples walk up to him, and they point out the temple. This is the physical temple that's standing there around 33 AD. It's a physical temple. They're looking at it. Jesus said unto them, See you not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Okay, guys, you want me to see the, the temple and the buildings? Great. It's all coming down. Pretty simple. Pretty straightforward. Then the disciples say, And then, oh, well, wait, not right then. They seem to wait. And it's interesting that they seem not to say anything at that moment. It seems clearly this seems to indicate just from a normal reading. Wow, they, they had to give this some thought. They were really bothered by this. this they, you think you can almost see that they're just there's a shock. Wait, all of this is going to be destroyed. They wait. And when Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, the disciples come to him in private saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? They are completely baffled and confused. And obviously, they want to know, when is this temple going to be destroyed? When is this, when when is that going to happen? That's clearly the main thrust of their question. Clearly, that's what they want to know. And then immediately, and Jesus answered and said unto them, the ones asking the questions, are the ones Jesus, be, are the very individuals Jesus begins to give the answer to. And then starting in verse 4 and following, Jesus gives an answer to their question of, when is this going to happen? Now, everybody will try to take those questions apart and say, well, but he, they're asking a number of things. You're, you're, you have to assume that the disciples are asking these questions based off some like, well thought out eschatology. And they're like, so okay, what he is saying that there's going to be, there's going to be this, then there's going to be his coming and, and there's going to be the end of the world. Why would you assume that they're asking this question based off some well thought out eschatology when throughout the gospels, every time the disciples ask a question, it demonstrates they have no understanding of what's going on and they're constantly confused about what Jesus is doing, about what Jesus is saying, and about what Jesus is going to do. They're constantly confused. They constantly demonstrate their confusion and their ignorance. So why would we not assume that this is what's happening here? They just don't understand. So when is this all going to happen? And then Jesus begins to give them the answer. And obviously, the normal, normal way of reading this would mean that he's giving signs pointing to the destruction of that temple, which we know when it occurred in 70 AD. It's simple, it's straightforward, but no, it's not so simple and straightforward. It's not so simple and straightforward because once again, as Christians, we can't agree on what I think is simple and straightforward. And this is what bothers me. If we can't figure out what what this is talking about, then then is there any hope to come to any any agreement on anything? Or we just all, does it really matter? I think we've basically given up. There's never going to be an agreement. So you know what? You just come to your conclusion and you find people who will listen to you with your conclusion and you ignore everyone else. I mean, really, because who really cares what anybody else says? Because everybody has their own idea. But to me, if we can't figure this out, what hope is there? And if we can't figure this out, this would seem to indicate that the Bible, even in the passages that seem to be the most straightforward and the most simple, even those passages are beyond our capability of interpreting them with the basic rules of reading and grammar that we've learned. That is disheartening. That is discouraging. And I, and I don't want to end our, I don't want, as we move forward to end our study of Matthew 24, I think that's going to be one of the major lessons. It's just, this is a reality that every Christian has to wrap their mind around. And I don't know how you handle it. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm just to the point that I just, I'm just, I'm just exhausted and tired of it. 
It's like we can't agree on any. And and I look, I I, I know that anytime I turn on the microphone and I post any Bible teaching online, boom, I'm going to get someone's going to disagree. And th- and they always do so in the most arrogant way because they've got it all figured out, and everybody else is an idiot, and everybody else is wrong. That's the way it always works. But what we are doing right now is we decided to take some time to start reviewing some sermons on Matthew 24. Now, the reason I was doing this is because I want the people to hear as many different perspectives as possible. I've tried to have everyone just do their own homework. So they're developing their own perspective. They've heard a little bit of my perspective. I've also tried to give them the perspective of preterism because I want them to hear something that they're probably not familiar with. We've also looked at the perspective put forth in the curriculum. So we're, we're, we're trying to add as many different perspectives as possible because I don't think it's, I, I don't like when preachers just basically turn on their microphone, stand behind a pulpit, and just basically, they have their system, they have their interpretation, and just speak it as dogmatic fact without letting everyone know, hey, there's like 40 different views here, but, but, but you know, just... Just take my word for it. So I'm trying to give everyone every different perspective. So I thought, you know what? Let's just grab a random sermon on Matthew 24. As always, I don't listen to them first. And we'll listen to it. And we listen to a sermon on Matthew 24. We've got 22 minutes of it left. There's really no value probably in reviewing the last 22 minutes, but I just don't like anyone to say, oh, you took them out of context. So I review everything they say. But here's basically what we found. According to what we heard, Matthew 24 has nothing to do with 70 AD. It is all about the second coming of Christ. In fact, they even reinterpreted the way the disciples asked the question that they really weren't that they weren't even really asking a question about 70 AD. They were asking a question about well, Jesus second coming. Like 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 for them, the destruction of the temple basically we were told was no big deal to them. It was like, yeah, whatever. We kind of knew that. But there's going to be another temple. They're looking towards another temple. And basically what we were told, Jesus' answer wasn't even for the disciples. Wasn't even for the disciples because they're dead. And in reality, Jesus' answer is only for one generation. And we don't know when that generation is going to be. All of these signs that everyone keeps grabbing, they're really not for you. The only way you're going to know these signs are for you is when the event happens. When the uh, the event happens, I'll tell you what that event is in a minute. When that event happens, then you know the signs are for you. So in other words, this is written in such a way that generation after generation is going to claim these signs as pointing to the second coming of Christ. But in reality, because nothing in Matthew 24 is about 70 AD. They just basically dogmatically just said, nope, it's about the future. <laughs> Then they say that these signs are written in such a way that they're going to deceive generation after generation. Generation after generation is going to read this and go, see, this is a sign that Jesus is coming back. And you're going to be like, oh, sorry, not for your generation. Next generation, nope, not for you, not for you. And it's going to keep going until that one generation will finally be able to look back and go, wow, those signs were for us. (laughs) So you have signs that you can't even know our signs until after the thing the sign is supposed to be pointing to happens. Then after it happens, you can go back and go, whoa, those signs were for us. Those are the, that's the most useless signs I've ever heard in my life. Not only that, we found out that not only does Matthew 24 have nothing to do with 70 AD, that the signs are only for one generation, not only, and that you don't understand the signs until after the event occurs, Matthew 24 is not even in any form of chronological order. According to the sermon we heard, this is the way it works. Verses 4 through 14 are signs, but but they don't really occur. The, the, The trigger that really sets them into motion is verse 15. When the abomination of desolation takes place, then the signs of 4 through 14 will occur. So in other words, you have no signs leading up to the abomination of desolation. It just occurs. Once it occurs, then you can grab your Bible and go, okay, now we're going to have verses 4 through 14, which is just, <laughs> I, I, I mean, like, like you're just literally saying that, that, that the average way of reading this doesn't even make any sense. So what we're doing now, so the abomination of desolation, 
again, let me just remind you, in our study, we came to a pretty, I think, a pretty good conclusion based off not only the, the normal reading of the text, but based off actual history that the abomination of desolation occurred in 70 AD when Romans destroyed the temple, desecrated the temple, took took the things from the temple out with them, and they desecrated the temple with their 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 symbols and signs of basically their idolatry. And of course, of course, by de- destroying the temple, they were basically declaring, "We're greater than the God of the Jews. We are God." And so, they the abomination of desolation occurred right there in seventy A.D. But according to the view that we're he- hearing, no, 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 no. No, 70 AD is not what this is pointing to. This is pointing to a future event with a new temple being built, and then something is going to occur. And so that's what we're trying to figure out, what they claim this event is. You probably know what they think it is, but again, they they do nothing to even try to consider, well, wait a minute. Is it possible that verses 1 through 14 happened before 70 AD? We've already proved that 4 through 14 all happened before 70 AD. According to the sermon we're listening to, none of those things happened before 70 AD, which, of course, we've got history that would say otherwise. In fact, verse 14, where it says the gospel will be preached into all the world, we've got the words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians and the end of Romans, which says the gospel goes into all the world and it went to every creature. So the Apostle Paul seemed to think verse 14 occurred before 70 AD, but I, I mean, what does the Apostle Paul know? I mean, he doesn't know anything. So once again, we just ignore all of that. And according to this sermon, verse 15 is the event that sets off the signs in verses 4 through 14. So verses 4 through 14 are not the signs leading up to verse 15, Verse 15 happens, then verses 4 through 14 are the signs that tell us that the event in verse 15 happened. Like, how are the signs, why do they follow the abomination of desolation if the abomination of desolation is some significant event? Why, like, here's the signs that don't point to verse 15. They point, it's just so crazy. But the sermon we're listening to was preached by Dr. John MacArthur. Now, as I've said many times, Dr. John MacArthur is very instrumental in my discipleship. I would, there's no, no one can argue about all that he has done. I've disagreed with some recent controversies that we could, you know, we could get into. But, um, so I don't want to make this a personal thing. This is just my frustration with someone as learned as he is, someone who has preached as much as he has, someone who preaches verse by verse, for some weird reason, doesn't handle Matthew 24 in a very straightforward, clear way, which seems to indicate that no, the average person can't understand it. So, so what? in some ways, I think what's happened in the Protestant world, if we, we've rejected the magisterial authority of the Catholic Church to interpret the Bible, and we've just replaced it with the magisterial authority of our choosing. We pick which celebrity pastor, which celebrity commentary, and that becomes the magisterial authority to tell us what to believe. And I think in in MacArthur's case with Matthew 24, he's allowing his eschatology, he's allowing his theology to blind the clear reading of the text. So the job in this episode is to finish this review. I think we've already demonstrated what his view is on Matthew 24, but I'm curious. Well, I'm just going to, I'm curious where it's going to go. So we're just going to, we're going to follow this to the end. So here we go. Now you say, well, um, how do we know what this is? Well, it helps us, gives us a key in verse 15. See it there? It's that abomination of desolation, not just any abomination, not just any event, but the one spoken of by Daniel the prophet. The one spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Now all we have to do is go back and find out what Daniel said. Let's do it. Chapter 11. Now in chapter 11, the first part of the chapter, and this is a rather long chapter, is devoted to some historical things and the latter part to the end-time things. But while you're looking in chapter 11, notice verse 31. 
And here in verse 31, we have a very, very graphic description of an interesting historical figure. And by the way, I don't know that any Bible commentary that I've ever read, no matter what their viewpoint on prophecy, has ever interpreted this any other way, at least no reputable scholar has, than as a reference to an historical figure by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a Syrian king who basically reigned from about 175 to 165 B.C. He called himself Epiphanes, which means the great one. He wasn't a very modest fellow. So he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus the Great One. The people called him Antiochus Epimenes. Antiochus? Antiochus Epiphanes, I think. Okay, it's just interesting. I'm hearing a different way of saying it. Maybe we've been saying it wrong. Let Let me look at something. That's, that's interesting. And I think it's Antiochus Epiphanes IV or Antiochus IV Epiphanes, which he does call himself that. Just get, not, not a big deal here. I just, whenever I realize that maybe I've been saying it wrong, uh, I get really bothered uh, that I've said it incorrectly all of these years. Uh, let me see here. Uh, it's the, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna play this because now I'm just concerned that I've been saying it wrong. Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay, Antiochus. Antiochus. They say it. The last part different. Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. Wow. Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. I've 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 said that completely. Different. Let's uh, let's go to this and see. Uh, let's see how they do this. If you struggle to okay, they've got to use a commercial. Antiochus Epiphanes, right? Let's see here. How how do they say it? Here we go. This king, as well as how to say more interesting and related names from ancient history. So make sure to stay tuned and consider subscribing for more learning. How do you say it? There are two different ways of saying the first name, which are as Antiochus, Antiochus, or Antiochus, and then Epiphanes, Epiphanes. So. All right. So Antiochus, Anti- Antiochus. Yeah. So. Uh, it, it looks like there's a lot of different ways of saying it. it it's a lot of different ways of saying it. So, so we'll we'll have to work on that. So that's so you know so we're learning something. All right, but uh, remember this is the way it's said here. If I can get this to work. Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. All right. Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus. Okay, I guess I have been saying it wrong. All right, we learned something. That's why you listen to as many different things as possible. Um, pro- I, I think I've heard it preached uh, being said the other way. I think I was taught in seminary the other way, so I, I don't know. All right, well, let's continue. Not, not a big deal, but just when I hear, when I hear something, I'm like, I, 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 I want to think about it. And just, just so that you know, and, and, and as it's said here, Antio- Antiochus Epiph- Epiphanes, or and Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus Epiphanes, however you want to say his name, just remember he is someone in, I think, 163, 164 B.C., maybe 167 B.C. It's a number I tend to do bad, poorly remembering numbers. But he uh, desecrates the temple. Uh, he slaughters a pig on the altar. It's a horrible thing. But clearly, that prophecy, a lot of people think that in Daniel... That's who it's pointing to. Just remember, Jesus takes that event and points it to obviously something future of when he talks about the destruction of the temple, which we would think that occurred in 70 AD when Titus comes in and basically, well, desecrates the temple. And that becomes the abomination of desolation Jesus is pointing to, not to to another temple, but to what happened in 70 AD. Again, I still think that's the only normal way of reading it that makes any sense. But let's see what they do here which means maniac. So I suppose they didn't call him that to his face, but that's what they called him. But anyway, this particular man is a very interesting figure. In verse 31, it says this about him, and if you study the whole text, it's clear who it is. History makes it very obvious. 
Forces shall stand on his part, and they'll pollute the sanctuary of strength, take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that makes desolate. There's that same phrase again. He is going to bring about an abomination of desolation. That is Antiochus Epiphanes. So here we have a historical picture of what the end-time abomination is going to be like. He was a great persecutor of the people of Israel. If you read, if you have an old Catholic Bible or you can get an apocryphal, you'll find the books of Maccabees, 1st and 2nd Maccabees. If you look in there, you'll get a whole rundown on Antiochus because it was written in the period in which he lived, uh, a period about 400 years after Daniel prophesied and prior to the New Testament era. But you read in there that he tried to stamp out Jewish religion, and in so doing, he slaughtered thousands and thousands of Jews, including men, women, and even children. He, in the worst act as far as Jewish history is concerned, desecrated the temple. He abominated the temple by going in there and slaughtering a pig on the altar and then stuffing pork down the throats of the priests and then setting up a god in that place, an abomination, a Greek god. I think it was Zeus. And so this was, a, this was a, a time, it wasn't just a one act, he put Zeus in there and the temple became desolate, the Jews never went back, they wouldn't go near the place, they wouldn't go to a defiled place, and the daily sacrifice was completely stopped. And that's exactly what 1131 of Daniel says he would do. He would come along, pollute the sanctuary, he did, slay, slaying a pig on the altar, took away the daily sacrifice, that's exactly what happened, they, na- they made no more sacrifices there, and the place was so abominable that it became desolate, the Jews never went back, and that is exactly right. And it was not changed until the Maccabean Revolution overturned his power, and uh, they were able to go back to their religion. Now that sacrilege committed by Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century B.C. is a foretaste and a preview of the final kind of sacrilege that will be committed in the end time. It will be very much the same very much the same. And Daniel speaks of that one back in chapter 9. So let's go back to 9. By the way, Daniel mentions abomination of desolation three times, three times. Now back in chapter 9, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, we don't have the time, but in chapter 9, Daniel has a tremendous prophecy about the history of Israel redemptively. And he says in verse 24 that 70 weeks... Seventy heptads, seventy weeks of years. The weeks here are weeks of years. Seventy weeks of years, seventy times seven or four hundred and ninety years are determined on thy people, Israel, at the end of which transgression is finished, sin is ended, iniquity is made reconciliation for, everlasting righteousness comes, visions and prophecies are sealed up, and the most holy Messiah is anointed. Now, there it is, folks. 490 years to the end, 490 years to the kingdom of Messiah, when sin is done and the righteousness reigns in the kingdom. You say, wow, if we can find out when it begins, we can find out when it ends. Well, we can find out when it begins in the next verse. Understand it from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem. When was that? That was Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes in 440s made a decree to rebuild the temple to rebuild the city and let the Jews do that. That's when it started. And so you can start counting from there. Seven weeks, three score and two weeks. That's 69 weeks. It'll be 69 weeks unto the Messiah the Prince. 69 weeks to the Messiah the Prince. And it's been calculated to be exact to the very day when Messiah came. Now that leaves how many weeks left? One week. There's one loose week and that's the problem. We know the 69 ended when Messiah came, but the 70th hasn't come yet. So we have an undetermined time gap between the 69th and the 70th. Now, verse 27. I'm not getting, I'm not commenting on all of this. There's much debate, lots of arguing about this section. I'm not going to get into all of that because that would divert us from Matthew 24. But he's going to take this, go to Matthew 24. And then remove this from the context of 70 AD, which is clearly what Matthew 24 is going to say, and then say what Jesus is really prophesying is this future event and a future temple, And because Matthew 24, according to MacArthur, has nothing to do with 70 AD, which again is just absolutely astounding that we can't 
go with the basic reading of the text. I'm not saying that there's not nothing in Matthew 24 that may jump to the future, but you've got to be able to explain what what what's the catalyst for saying this jumps to the future because I can clearly show you that the abomination of desolation 70 AD Rome did that. They it was an abomination of desolation. They desolated completely defiled the temple. I mean they destroyed it. So clearly that would fit, but no Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we don't like what the, the the clear answer is if it doesn't go with our theology and our doctrine. But let's continue. There is a prince in verse twenty six who will come in the future. This prince is going to come, and he's going to bring desolation. There's that word again that means ruination, devastation. And he's going to come and make a covenant with Israel for one week. And in the middle of that week, He will cause the sacrifice and the offerings to cease, just exactly like Antiochus Epiphanes did. And we know this isn't talking about Antiochus because all of this is connected to the coming of Messiah, isn't it? All of this is connected to the end of sin and the end of transgression and the end of iniquity and the bringing in of everlasting righteousness and the anointing of the Most Holy and the time of the kingdom. So it's got to be at the second coming. But he's going to go into halfway through that seven years, which would be three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days, cause the sacrifice to stop, and then he's going to bring the overspreading of abominations that make desolate. There's the abomination of desolation. Now, I'm going to throw out an argument here, all right? And I'm not saying this works perfectly. But Jesus takes the concept of abomination of desolation. He, he makes it clear he's referring to Daniel. And he's obviously pointing it to 70 AD, clearly, right? Now, the question is, does 70 AD completely fulfill every word that's ever spoken about the defilement of the temple and everything that happens? It doesn't have to fulfill everything. It just has to fulfill what Jesus says in Matthew 24. If 70 AD fulfills most everything in Matthew 24 then that's what we look for. If you think that there's other passages that points to another abomination of desolation that's going to occur at a later time, you can make that argument. You just can't ignore the plain reading of Matthew 24 where Jesus is telling them when that's going to be destroyed. I, I think we have to at least... we we. Everybody wants to go run everywhere else. I'm just going to say that the abomination of desolation clearly in Matthew 24, had to point to 70 AD to some degree, to some level, because we know what happened in 70 AD. And he's going to do this until the consummation, and that which is determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. In other words, he's going to do it till the end and God's final judgment. So the future ruler, the future prince, the prince, the willful king, the little horn, the antichrist, the beast out of the sea, whatever you want to call him, the man of sin, the son of perdition, various terms, he is going to make a covenant with Israel during that final week. So what you have then is the coming of Christ. And just before that, you have a seven-year period. That seven-year period is initiated when Israel makes a covenant with this prince, this king who is the leader of the Western Confederacy, who will be a protector for Israel. Halfway through the week, he turns on Israel, stops their sacrifices, sets up an idol in the midst of the temple, stops all of their worship, makes them worship this false god, this false idol, abominates the place so that it goes into ruination and Jews won't go near it. Now, go to chapter 12 of Daniel. So what he's doing is he's kind of just like, okay, Jesus says some words, but what we really need to do is go to Daniel, and Daniel gives us the real understanding. At, at least I'm now getting a better understanding of what he's trying to do. I just think like, well, what about the clear words in Matthew 24? But okay. Listen very carefully in these last few moments. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, please, he mentions it again. And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, that's the abomination of desolation, 
and the abomination that makes desolate set up. Would you please notice it's set up. It doesn't happen in one moment. It becomes permanent. That's why Matthew 24, 15 says, shall stand in the holy place. It isn't a momentary thing. It is something set up there that is an abomination that ruins the place and it's made permanent there. It stands there. So from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there'll be 1,290 days. You say, wait a minute. From the time in the middle, 1,290 days. That's 30 days more than three and a half years. Where'd the extra 30 come from? Revelation 12, 6 says it'll be 1,260 days. Daniel says 1,290 days. Why the disparity? I think the best explanation of that is that it is in those 30 days after the tribulation is ended that the Lord, when He comes to the Mount of Olives, as it says in Zechariah, creates a great valley into which all the nations of the world are gathered to be judged. And I believe Daniel has taken us 30 days beyond to give us that time frame in which there will be the judging of the nations described in Matthew 25 as the judgment of the sheep and goats, in which all the living people still on the earth at the end of the tribulation are gathered together to the Lord to be judged as to their suitability for heaven and hell. This is just absolutely amazing to me because this is a sermon in a series on Matthew 24. And just because, just because in Matthew 24, verse 15, Jesus says, uh, when you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Just because he mentions Daniel, then the argument is, okay, well then just forget the, the context of Matthew 24, the situation, the words, just forget that. Run back to Daniel. Look for anywhere where we see the phrase abomination of desolation. Put it all together and say, clearly Jesus wasn't referring to 70 AD. He's referring to a future temple and the Antichrist. And then just put all of that together. Just literally forgetting Matthew 24. Let me say it again. Matthew 24, the abomination of desolation spoken of in Matthew 24 has to be pointing to 70 AD. You can make an argument, well, it, it can't be the only abomination of desolation. It, it can't be the last abomination of desolation. It can't be the only one because there's other things in Daniel that wasn't fulfilled in Matthew 24. You could say it that way, but you can't say that what happened in 70 AD was an abomination of desolation because they come in and, des I mean, wh how, what more, what's a, what, what better way to desecrate a temple than to utterly destroy it? There's nothing left there. And currently, Jews can't even in many cases go to the Temple Mount unless they have permission only at specific times. They don't even control the Temple Mount. <laughs> so I think that that's a desolation. I think that's a destruction. I, I, I just don't see how you can just like, well, no, we're looking for something different because Matthew 24 is not about anything related to 70 AD. That's the very context of the question. And it is that 30-day period which we see here in Daniel that is added to the Revelation text. Further, look at verse 12. Blessed is the one who waits and comes all the way to the 1,335 days. Now we got 45 more days. The blessed people are going to last another 45. I mean, if, if you're in that judge... So the implication here is that a judgment occurs at the 1290 period. And that's what I think is being described. There's a 30-day period in there in which that judgment of the nations takes place. Blessed are those who go into the next 45-day period. What's that? I believe the next 45-day period that goes to 1335 is a transition time for the setting up of the kingdom. The Lord establishes His throne in Jerusalem. The Lord sets us in, in places of rulership, in places of representation as envoys throughout the world and establishes His kingdom, begins to bring the nations to Him, starts disseminating the rules and the principles for the messianic millennium, and that is that 45-day period. So Daniel then sees the abomination of desolation. Then Revelation takes us 1,260 days, end of tribulation, 30 more days for the judgment of the nations, 45 more days for the establishing of the millennial kingdom, and then on into the kingdom. Prophecy is so explicit. 
And what I love is he's going to Daniel and he's putting everything in some kind of specific chronological order to the very day. He, these 30 days, these, these 30 days is where you have the judgment of the nations. These 45 days is where you have you before the millennial kingdom reigns or, or before the millennial kingdom begins. 45 days to set up the kingdom. So he's got these very specific, very chronological order. Now, one of the things we're going to do is we're going to review another sermon by him because as we have discovered in our working through Matthew 24, once you jump away from 70 AD, once you just leave 70 AD and you're like, okay, this is going to go to the future. This is going to go to a future seven-year tribulation. And when you start going there, Matthew 24, and may, maybe, and I, and I will I'm, I will acknowledge this is right now because because I'm still giving everyone the opportunity to fix the chronology. Nobody has emailed me going, no, no, no. The chronology works perfectly in Matthew 24. To me, the chronology falls completely and utterly apart because at the end of the tribulation in Matthew 24, then you have the moon, the sun, the start. You have all of that happens at the conclusion of the tribulation. That is completely confusing because if you put, typically you say that, that the moon, the sun, and all of those things happen during the tribulation. Matthew 24 puts it after the tribulation, which creates all kinds of problems with trying to figure that out. All right. So, uh, in fact, I will show you Matthew 24 because it gets really confusing. And we're, we're going to continue to work on this. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, if we jump to the future and we're talking a tribulation in the future, a seven-year tribulation, right? If we go with a seven-year tribulation, at the conclusion of that, uh, the tr of those days, shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Well, wait, wait, so you're going to say that all happens at the conclusion of the tribulation? Why do we say that that happens during the tribulation? The, the whole thing begins to fall apart. Now, I agree. If you read some of that, it doesn't seem to fit 70 AD. Now, I know the preterists say it does. And on Wednesday night, if everything works out, we will, we will look at how the preterist tries to answer some of these verses. But I will say that if you put it in the future, now you've got to figure out, wait a minute. So I've got a seven-year tribulation. So I go to Revelation where I see things that affect the moon, the stars, the sun, and I go, wait a minute, is that happening during the seven years? If that's happening the seven years, then it happens again at the conclusion of the seven years? And this says, immediately after that, then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in great clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Well, is that, is that Revelation 19? Is that Revelation 19? And uh, then, uh, and, and, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet from they shall gather together the elect from the four uh, winds from one end of the earth to the other. So you would have the end of the tribulation, the moon, sun, all of that. Okay, what, what happens here? And of course, because typically what you would say is at the end of the tribulation, right? Then Jesus comes back slaughters his enemies, the, the feast is called for the birds to partake of, right? Then Jesus immediately sets up the millennial kingdom, and then you have a thousand-year reign. At the end of the thousand-year reign, then you have Satan released, and you have everything that takes place. So, so the, the immediately after the tribulation, now, are you saying the tribulation is those seven years? Are you saying the tribulation is the conclusion of the thousand-year reign? Because at the end of the thousand-year reign, don't you have more tribulation when you have a great war? And then at the end of that, then you have the destruction of everything, which would be the sun, the moon, the stars, and everything, because you have a new heaven and a new earth. Well, the only problem is there, then you have Jesus coming back. So see that all of it becomes very convoluted in how to put this in some kind of, of chronological order. He's putting Daniel in chronological order, but he's, he's completely ignoring, well, the historical context of Matthew 24. I, I'm going to be very interested. If he's going to put all of that in such specific order, what kind of or, how is he going to put this in order? Or is he going to ignore the order for the sake of his eschatology? Because if the order doesn't match your eschatology, what some people do is just throw out, well, who cares if the order's wrong because our eschatology is right? And, and like, how does that work? But the thing that triggers it all is the abomination of desolation. 
the desecration of the holy place. Now, you say, well, okay, I've got that, but what is it? Let me show you what it is. Go to the 13th chapter of Revelation, and this is it as specifically as it can be stated. Revelation 13. We ought to give you a degree for this message this morning. (laughs) Boy. Now, in Revelation 13, we meet the Antichrist. He's the beast, and he rises. If you get a degree for this message, you need to uh, return it as soon as possible because this is not helping you with Matthew 24. It's an absolute, utter rejection of the basic plain reading of Matthew 24. If this was a sermon on Daniel, then maybe okay. But he's not even tried to even figure out how 70 AD has to fit into this because he just artificially, dogmatically, never even explained None of this has to do with 70 A.D., even though Matthew 24 is clearly about 70 A.D. It's just, oh, it's maddening. All right, here we go. Revelation 13 is the abomination of desolation, according to what he is saying. So I'm going to find Revelation 13. All right, here we go. It says in verse 5 of Revelation 13, there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given to him to continue 42 months. There's that same three and a half years. He only goes for 1,260 days, three and a half years, 42 months. He doesn't last beyond that. That's his time of period. That 30-day period is a time after the tribulation has ended. So 42 months, he, he does his blasphemy. See, he starts out with this nice peaceful pact. He makes a covenant. In the middle, he starts his blasphemy. He starts to blaspheme God. He opens his mouth, verse 6, and blasphemes against God. He blasphemes his name, his tabernacle, and them that dwell in heaven. All right. He starts attacking God in that midweek point. And we see specifically how he attacks. Watch this. He makes war with the saints. He overcomes them. Power is given him over all kindreds, tongues, and nations. All that dwell upon the earth shall what? Worship him. What's the abomination of desolation? Who is the idol set up in the holy place? It's him. He sets himself up as the idol. He sets himself up as the object of worldwide worship. And then beginning in verse 11, you meet his cohort, the false prophet, who is another beast. He comes up and he does great signs and wonders. At the end of verse 14, his job is to bring the world to worship the image of the beast. He gives power to the image, verse 15, so that it can speak and so forth and so on. I don't know, with all the robotics we have today, that this would even be a problem. It could be so marvelous that we wouldn't know it wasn't actually a human being. Then again, it may be who knows what satanic things can come out of this kind of situation. But He causes the whole world to worship, and as many as don't worship the image of the beast are going to be slaughtered. Now there's the abomination. Antiochus Epiphanes set up a Greek god. This one's going to set himself up. Now you get the picture. As we move toward the end of human history, Israel is going to be more and more in a vulnerable position. And to protect themselves from that holocaust which they don't want to happen, they're going to align themselves up with a seemingly friendly Western European power headed up by by a prince, a leader, a great leader, an attractive leader. This particular leader is going to be their strength, their support, their help. The, The world is going to come against him and Israel. Just what's fascinating here, he, he mentions Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus Epiphanes, depending on how you want to say that last part. Um, he, he mentions him. That was a real person. That person really desecrated the temple. And then Jesus talks about it, but Jesus is not talking about 70 AD. So the destruction of the temple in 70 AD was not an abomination of desolation. It just didn't occur, I guess. It occurred, but it wasn't an abomination of desolation. It was irrelevant. So we go from Antiochus Epiphanes, all right, to another temple. That's the desecration Jesus was talking about, which just, just completely destroys the, the normal reading of Matthew 24. Again, I'm not, you can, you can say that there's going to be another one. I'm not, I'm not here to disagree with that, but you've got to acknowledge that what Jesus is pointing to is the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So clearly that had, that happened and you can't just say Matthew 24 is not about that. That's ridiculous. It clearly had to be because everything from verse four to 15 happened between 33 and 70 AD, including the abomination of desolation.
Israel at one point out of their hatred for Israel. He will defeat them all, and in that moment, he will betray his real heart, and he will also take power over Israel. He will desecrate their holy place. Now, having defeated the world and having all of them at his feet, he sets himself up to be worshipped. He becomes that God of all gods that the world must bow before and establishes the abomination of desolation. From that moment that he establishes that and the daily sacrifice which will be in the rebuilt temple in that time stops and Jewish people no longer go near the place, from that moment on the great tribulation begins. It it lasts 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years, followed by a 30-day period of judging and a 45-day period of transitioning into the millennial kingdom. Now, there, there would be perhaps one other passage you ought to take note of, and that is, of course, Paul's reference to this guy doing this in Second Thessalonians. Now, a couple of things. So he's saying the Great Tribulation, which I, I should have understood. I was trying to give the Tribulation a seven-year period, but you're right. The Tribulation, the Great Tribulation is three and a half years. But where does he stop the Great Tribulation? Because if he stops the Great Tribulation, like Matthew 24 does, it's after that that you have the moon, the sun, the stars, and all of that happening. So how does that happen after the Great Tribulation? How does that fit in? Now he's going to go to 2 Thessalonians, which we've already talked about. And let's just remind ourselves, 2 Thessalonians is written prior to, oh yeah, 70 AD. But he's going to go to, to 2 Thessalonians because everyone does, everyone does. Because who cares if it was written before 70 AD? Everyone just forgets 70 AD. It's weird. It's like so many within the Christian church just like 70 AD. Uh, I think it's a new band. It may be a new energy drink. 70 AD may be a new disease. It may be a version of COVID, but it can't be a, an actual historical event that has any significance to any of the biblical prophecies because my eschatology doesn't allow that to happen. It's just, it drives me crazy. Where it says that, he will come, in verse 4, exalting himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And he comes in verse 9, with the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and deceivableness of unrighteousness, and so forth. So he comes... Now, verse 9 it would be a good argument to go, hmm, does that fit 70 AD? See, that, that would be a good argument right there. That would be a good, but he, he's not interested in looking at the different perspectives and struggling with them. He just wants to make a dogmatic declaration as if the magisterial authority, this is the way it is. And it's not that simple. If it was, it wouldn't be so much disagreement for 2000 years of church history. You've got to, in your preaching, deal with all of the difficulties and all of the controversies. Because if you don't, you're not helping anyone. You're just, you're just, you're not getting them to study. You're just having them listen to you as the default pope. And I just reject that. We've got to, we got to work through and go. Well, what about this? And what about this? And what about that? Again, you, you, at least in considering Second Thessalonians, you have to consider it was written prior to 70 AD. So how does 70 AD impact some of the things we read in Second Thessalonians? It has to at least be acknowledged. And actually sets himself up as God. Now that's the abomination of desolation. Now let me just wrap this up very quickly. Listen, I want to read you some things right out of contemporary history. What's going to bring Israel to this? I'll tell you what it is. It's their fear of Russia and the Arabs. I talked to some leading men in Israel when I was there in the military and also who are teachers and so forth, and they are afraid of the Arabs. They're not afraid of their physical ability. They're not afraid of their mental ability. They don't trust them because they know the hatred is so deep. They're afraid of Russia. Whenever they seem to be able to take over a cache of weapons among the Arabs, they're always Russian weapons. They know there is a Russian-Arab alliance, and they know the hatred runs deep. And they know that that's the enemy they have to fear. And they are increasingly be surrounded by that Russian-Arab alliance. It fascinates me that in Ezekiel 38, the Bible says that in the end time, the king of the north, Rosh, Russia, is going to come against Israel. And allied with the king of the north will be Persia. Now, ancient Persia occupies the territory of two contemporary nations, Iran and Afghanistan. Five years ago, I couldn't figure out how Afghanistan fit into that. Now I know Afghanistan is now Russian-occupied, Russian-controlled. 
Libya on the south. We didn't know. I love listening to old sermons when they talk prophecy. It's it's like it could be it, it, it could be the comedy hour in some cases because I look 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 what's going on in the news right now. See this fits biblical prophecy. Uh yeah uh, no uh, Afghanistan is 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 it controlled by Russia now? No, Russia's got their own problems, right? They're trying they're trying to take over Ukraine and that's not going so well. Okay, but. But it's just to me, this was obviously in, I'm assuming the 1980s, maybe around 1987. Yeah, that didn't all work out so good for Russia. How, how long, yeah, Russia left uh, Afghanistan. And then we came in and then we left Afghanistan. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's just, it's just funny. Every time something happens in the news, people are like, this is it. This is it right here, right here, right here. This is going to do it. And then guess what? They say it, they put out their, their, their books, their prophecies, they, it goes away. Nobody cares. We just move on to the next one. I remember when um, Saddam evaded, invaded Kuwait. Oh, my goodness. There were books all over the Christian bookstore. The new Babylon's being built. And, and this is it. This uh, That came and went. 9-11. Oh, this is it. This is it. it. That came and went. No matter what it is, every time you turn around, this is it. This is it. This is it. This is, this is pointed. And you're just like, at no point does anyone ever stop and go, well, wait a minute. Is it possible that some of these prophecies are not pointing to something future? They're pointing to something that happened in 70 AD. Like that's not even a consideration in anyone's mind. But all we do is just looking more and more foolish because every time we make these speculations, well, 50, 30 years pass, 40 years pass, and well, here we are. A few years ago, why Libya was included in that same kind of prophecy we do now with Gaddafi, and we know where his leanings are. There is a circling Russian uh, alliance that poses a tremendous threat to Israel. And we don't understand that, but let me help you to understand it. Islamic expert Lance Lambert has said this, Islam has at its very heart a dogmatic belief that it must triumph. Ultimately, those who confess that Muhammad is not the prophet and that the Quran is not the final word of God are worthy only of death. Westerners cannot conceive of nations that base their whole policy and program on Islamic theology. But that is precisely what is happening in Iran, Libya, and Saudi Arabia. It is the same thing that we witness in the rise of fascism in Italy with Benito Mussolini, or the rise of Nazism in Germany with Adolf Hitler. It is not just ideological, it is theological. Muslims actually believe that their God has given them the oil weapon in order to finally win. Now, I do believe that so much of American foreign policy has been based off theological ignorance. Now, there I will agree. Over and over and over, we've done things. It's like, do you not understand the theology? Do you not understand their religion? And we end up looking foolish. But at the same time, we look foolish whenever time something happens in the world, we think this is this is it. This is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And that when it doesn't happen, the people who say those things never come back and go, mm, uh, no, no. I remember when Pope Benedict the Sixteenth stepped down. They're like, this is it. This is uh, this is this is going to be. And they they started telling me all the supposed prophecies. And well, here we are again, time and time again. I, I've been told constantly these things, and they don't come to pass. You buy the books, you buy the DVDs, and, and you think it's all, it's it's it, it's here, it's here. And well, it, we're, we're supposed to be in FEMA camps, lose our guns, and take the mark of the beast during the Obama administration. And well, yeah, here we are. Can you not see that Israel is an affront to Islam? A Jewish nation with a Jewish leadership, a Jewish army is an obscenity in the eyes of Islam. That is why the Bible says there will be war after war all centered upon those few square meters of land where the temple once stood, where now the Mosque of Omar and Al-Aqsa stand. Is it not interesting that Syrian President Assad disarmed every PLO man that's gone into Syria? They know they are producing terrorists for the subversion of the whole free world in this little beautiful land of Lebanon. The PLO has established a worldwide base for terrorism. In fact, the KGB World Center for Terrorism is in Beirut." End quote. We know the Islamic world hates the Jew, and it is, an, it is a theological war. And those soldiers over there told me it's just this simple. Treaties mean nothing, pacts mean nothing. If Allah says kill Jews, they kill Jews. And all that has to happen is somebody like Khomeini or somebody else stands up and says, Allah says kill the Jews. It has nothing to do with promises or anything else. And Russia's hatred is the same. Arkady Polishuk is a Russian Jew born in Moscow, was educated at Moscow University. He majored in Marxist philosophy. He became a leading Soviet journalist writing for Izvestia and Pravda. 
He became a radio TV commentator. Disillusioned, became an active dissident, traveled all over the USSR documenting Soviet violations of the Helsinki agreements, particularly related to their persecution of Jews and Christians. And eventually, Polishuk became a Christian. This is what he says. Communism was my religion. As a child, my first song was about Lenin. My first poem was about Stalin. My dream was to become a Communist Party member. I was one for nearly 15 years. That's why it is so difficult for me to get rid of my Marxist ideology, because it is my religion. Isn't it a beautiful idea to build paradise on earth? Communism is the only ideology that promises that. They have been fighting Christianity for 65 years, killing millions of Christians in Soviet camps and prisons. Communism can exist only where no other ideology exists. They have killed other ideologies, but Christian... But Christianity continues to grow. That's why it's such a danger. Since coming to the West, I found out that you Westerners are also brainwashed. Being a liberal here is good. Being conservative is bad. If you want to put the strongest label on an enemy, you call him a Nazi fascist. You never call him a communist. Yet Stalin killed far more people than Hitler. And every communist society today is based upon power and killing, fear, and brainwashing. Top church officials from the Soviet Union come to the West to tell about freedom of religion in Russia. The Soviets use these people as diplomats, as part of their propaganda machine to make you believe there is freedom of conscience in Russia. Just, uh, this is just amazing. This is a sermon on Matthew 24. We've done almost no work in Matthew 24. Everything was in Daniel. He just basically handed us a, a system of eschatology and imposed it on the text and completely ignored 70 AD, and now we're just going into, you know, what's happening in the world in 1987, I guess. I think this is when this was preached. And supposedly all fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And we sit here and listen to this in 2022, and well, here we go. As a boy in the streets of Moscow, I was beaten many times for being Jewish. There is real anti-Semitism there. I only got into Moscow University through very unusual circumstances. Listen to this. The Soviet Union is the most powerful empire in history. Like any other empire, it must keep growing. That's why they always try to expand into Africa, the Middle East, etc. But the Middle East is a very special place for the Soviets, not just because of oil and military strategy, but because of Soviet hatred of Jews. Soviet officials just hate Jews. They want to destroy the state of Israel. There's a certain demonic dimension about this that is impossible to explain." End quote. You want to know why they'll attack? Because they're prompted by Satan himself, who has generated hatred of the Jews to try to wipe that people out. And as you see a Russian-Arab alliance growing, you know that the whole prophetic picture is coming together. And they're going to be surrounded by this power. They're going to try to escape by seeking an alliance with a man who is also satanically energized. They think they have found safety, and he turns to be their betrayer, devastates and destroys the nations of the world, including Israel, sets himself up as God, and that brings the tribulation. Now, once that trigger goes, what should be their reaction? That's next Sunday's sermon. Let's pray. Let me just say this, and I thank you. For there you have it. So we have a, a, a perspective on Matthew 24 that basically completely removes it from the actual reading of the text and from the historical context. You can make of that what you wish. You can email me newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening. God bless.